Gagan, and you're listening to a special episode of the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Exceedance. Today's guest is an insurance technology entrepreneur with a great story to tell. Aaron Balakrishnan started his career at sea, but went back to business school, became an internet entrepreneur, and ended up captaining Berkshire Hathaway's foray into the Indian insurance market. Ten years ago, he founded insurance technology firm Exceedance, and the growth has been rapid. But that's just a bit of background, because the main purpose of today's podcast is to talk about artificial intelligence, AI, and in particular the generative AI that has exploded onto the world's consciousness in the past six months. When something has been this hyped, having someone like Aaron on the show is an absolute godsend. Aaron is a great explainer, and he first helps educate me about what the terms banded around in AI really mean. Then we start to get to work on decoding what the best applications are going to be in the insurance world. This is fascinating stuff, and we soon get down to the fundamentals of what machines and humans are really best at. I don't think I'll spoil anything by saying that the humans in insurance really shouldn't worry about being made redundant by this new technology. There are some things that AI can't do well, and even if it could, we probably wouldn't want it to do them for us. This is far more about improved accuracy and vastly increased productivity. Aaron says we should probably think of it a bit like being allocated a smart intern, apprentice, or an indefatigable underwriting assistant. Aaron's a great teacher, and I can highly recommend this episode to anyone feeling bewildered or daunted as to how to start to engage with this exciting new technological development. Enjoy the podcast. Arun, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you, Mark. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, anyone who doesn't know you, how you've got to be where you are today? So I'm a bit of an interesting background. If I go back all the way, I actually started my career in the merchant marine. Started as a navigating officer for a few years and then decided to do an MBA. Uh, went to one of the good business schools in India. The entrepreneurial bug kind of bit me. So straight out of college, I decided I'll start my own business. Decided to sell insurance online in India when they were not even buying books. <laughs> so I uh, had the dreams of becoming the money supermarket in India. But 2008 happened and the truth of the matter was, frankly, I mean, at that point, I don't think we knew exactly what we were doing. But something good came out of it. I got to know that Berkshire Hathaway is looking for a CEO in India to build out that direct business model for insurance. When I got the call, I thought maybe there's a mistake. <laughs> That's an amazing thing to have on your resume. Oh, yeah. I mean, those three years when I was a CEO for Berkshire Hathaway in India setting up their business, I think I felt more entrepreneurial than even my own prior ventures. So long story short, in 2013, Berkshire Hathaway India decided to leave the India market. Some of the constraints around foreign investment and all were just not aligning with them. It was always taking so long, wasn't it? Uh, yes. Plus, in India, the laws were limited around a foreign company owning only 26%. Yeah. We were thinking it'll change. It never changed. So Berkshire Hathaway decided to exit India. At that time, I spoke to them. They would like to use our team for providing some services around underwriting, CAT modeling, IT services, back office, things like that. And I would like to believe we had probably earned some good credibility there. So Berkshire Hathaway agreed to become our pilot anchor clients. And 12 team members from Berkshire India joined me in this, two Pambas as co-founders. And that's kind of the origin story of Exceedance. That was 10 years ago now. Yeah, that's right. I mean, time flies. We just did our 10th anniversary celebrations. That's kind of my background. <laughs> Fantastic. So Exceedance, tell us all about it. What's your core products and services? 
the simplest way to describe our organization is think of us as an insurance company without capital, without distribution. I mean, our vision was if you look at the insurance industry, there's clear behemoths in the capital segment. You have Munich Re, Berkshire Hathaway, Swiss Re. In the distribution bucket, you have the Aeon, Willis, March, and then the expense ratio bucket is quite fragmented. So if you, mm-hmm. you might have somebody in claims, somebody in actuarial, somebody in data. So we're trying to create an organization which can to give any insurance entity, be it a broker, MGA, reinsurer, insurer, an ability to run their business across IT, ops, claims, soup to nuts there, right? So we're really a combination of services, products, and data, which really enable any insurance entity across the world. So it's like you're the virtual insurance business, um, that everything is not the operational side, the actual insuring. Yeah, so I mean, I say that a bit differently. I think we look at us as a vertical focused and technology-enabled service provider. Insurance companies, sometimes one of them might need only services around claims DPA. Some of them might need only services around technology or administrating a policy admin system. So we can be across everything or across piecemeal, but really anything which can help an insurance company be more digital, be more efficient, be a bit more lean or however you describe it. We are really enablers of the target operating model, except distribution. We can't get into distribution. We can't take any risk. Other than that, we can help companies work. No, that sounds really interesting. So you're almost completely agnostic as to where in that value chain you want to play. I mean, so in terms of those customers, where are most of them and in what part of the insurance market are they? I would say about 65% of the business comes from the US markets and about 20% or a little more would come from London and a little bit from Europe and the remaining comes from Australia and Asia market. So we work with about 120 plus clients across the value chain. But the area where we have been able to show the biggest difference is, I would say, in commercial insurance. And the more heterogeneous a policy is, the more we can add value, right? I mean, if you have like an auto carrier doing a million policies the same, they've only used outsourcing as a method to do it. Yeah. We have tried to combine outsourcing and a global resourcing model with technology and some capabilities around that. So I would say commercial heavy and within commercial specialty lines, the big core area, it's all the major developed markets in insurance. So what that pitch is that you're the digital enabler for any of these businesses? Our pitch is simply, we like to contribute for companies in two areas. Either we help them reduce their expense ratio. That's number one. And second is, can we improve their underwriting efficiency. So more premium per underwriter, more premium per staff. These are the two levers on which we can add a lot of value. Some one which goes to the bottom line, one which goes to the top line. But helping a company either write more premium in the form of leveraging tech, global resources and others, or improve the bottom line by having more efficient processes, efficient resourcing and all these elements. So those are really the two main areas. And what about the sort of intelligence side of it? trying to improve that loss ratio by looking at what you're underwriting and how you're doing it? We see that as more of a function of improving risk selection. And it's harder to quantify, but we do work a lot there with underwriters, right? So be it property, casualty, either better exposure analysis or better estimation of catastrophic losses or large losses, things like that. There, but it is harder to estimate, you know, is the last loss ratio improvement was because of our contribution or theirs. So we really don't try to split hairs. I mean, in the end, if the client is winning, the client is winning. But yeah, there are a lot of areas around risk selection, pricing, where we do work with our clients and have helped them scale. 
So if I had some underwriters, I had some capital, and I had the licenses and the distribution, you could do almost everything else. Yeah, you're the kind of companies we love. <laughs> so just do the whole lot, do the whole lot. I'm not interested. Yeah, I mean, in some of our best success stories. I mean, there's been a company we started working with on day one, which is today doing about $5 billion. There's a company we worked in, an MGA, which is doing $500 million, right? And it's exactly the same business. Underwriters who understand the business, they really wanted us to help enable them on various functions, right? So building a uniform solution across all areas, right, from front-end, underwriting efficiency, to policy processing, claims, finance and accounts, everything. So they are focused on doing what is their key skill set, and they can leverage companies like ourselves or scale. So we love startups. We love startup insurance companies who want to build up in syndicates or MGAs. Those are our favorite kind of clients. That's <laughs> because they don't have any legacy. They can come in and just have the ideal. Absolutely. You can offer them everything. Yeah, but the flip side on that, just not to be distracting, is with these companies, it's all about the pace. They're growing so fast that, you know, sometimes it feels like the age-old phrase of flying a plane while you're building it. So that's <laughs> the flip side, but it's always fun to work with them. I mean, and you're helping them go faster, aren't you? I mean, because they don't have to worry about scaling systems and things. Exactly. And the best thing we like to do is we provide everything at a variable cost model. In the early startup days, you don't want companies to build fixed costs. And that's when we tell them you can leverage us. Why do you want to hire full-time people? When you get to scale, then get into it, right? So yeah, it's a win-win in those kind of situations. <laughs> I'm glad we spent a little bit of time talking about you and your business, just because it'll give us a bit of context as to where you're coming from. because what we're really going to be talking about today is artificial intelligence, or I'm sure we're yeah. going to be abbreviating it to AI. And of course, it's been so much more in the news, but it's probably a good time for some of the listeners to define what we really mean by AI, because we've heard about things like machine learning and other things. But of course, I think this year, this has been the absolute buzzword of the year. So perhaps it'd be good if you could fill us in on what we mean by AI, particularly within the insurance context. I think if I had to just for the benefit of listeners, establish what has really happened in this year. So machine learning is not a new word. I mean, it's been around for some time. Suddenly the last year with GPT coming in and generative AI, there's a whole lot of buzz around it, right? So I think it'll be useful to understand what has really happened because it'll help us understand better. So machine learning in typical sense was you take a data set, say there are pictures of damaged cars, right? Then you used to train a software piece by doing some labeling. There are people who label from these damaged cars, there's a dented, there's a dent, there's a crash, there's damaged glass. You train that to a model and the model based on this learns itself. And then when you give it new data, it can predict. That's the typical confines of a machine learning predictive modeling, which used to happen. We've done several projects and insurance industry tried to adopt it in claims predictions, better actual pricing and all of that, right? Yeah. Now, just giving some history. In 2013 and thereabouts, I think there's a new technology which somebody came out called word to vec So word to vec is basically what somebody did was you take a word and you try to create a mathematical number, which based on the position of it in a sentence, gives it a particular score. On that basis, what it could do is you could convert the entire series of words into a series of numbers, which can then be used to do mathematical modeling and things like that. So to give you an example, if I say that I've taken this bottle of juice and poured into a cup till it is full. Mm -hmm. The other sentence I say, I take this bottle of juice and pour it into a cup 
till it is empty. These are exact two sentences, but in the first case, the it is referring to the cup, whereas in the second case, it is referring to the bottle. Right? Now, that's when, after a few years, transformers came. Transformers are basically neural networks. Right? So I'm not to geek it out so much, but what these neural networks could do is using the position of a word in a particular sentence, combine that with word to vec, they could do accurate zero-shot predictions. Again, simplifying, zero-shot basically means I tell a model, here's a word, convert it into Hindi language. The model is expected to do it right away. One shot is I tell him, convert it into Hindi. This means this in Hindi. Now you figure it out. What transformers could do is come up with a high degree zero shot prediction of this. What that has created is GPT is that generative pre-trained transformers. What transformers can do now is the learning on them is not dependent on somebody tagging those pictures, somebody explaining it to the model. The scale at which it can learn is very, very fast, very, very high. And that's why you're seeing accuracy of information and things like that coming. So the technology and its potential has leapfrogged in the last one year. And I think one of the best things which could have happened is if you typically take any technology in the recent decade, right? And when you talk about machine learning or you talk about blockchain, they were all enterprise-centric. The common man didn't know it. The common mm -hmm. man didn't have a clue of what blockchain is or things like that, right? So enterprise adoption was very slow. Whereas with GPT, it's quite the other way around. The consumers have taken to it much before organizations. And because the consumers are taking it and accelerating the pace of it, organizations are taking a very heavy interest in adopting that into the enterprise world. So when I combine the actual technological progress made using transformers and generative AI over the last few years with the consumer adoption, I think insurance companies and all, there's a very high degree of interest in adopting it. And mm -hmm. that's why the level of progress and the level of effort we are putting in adopting that into our clients' requirements, needs is very high as well, right? So maybe I geeked it out a bit, right? But I think just for the listener's benefit, the conforms of what was possible with traditional neural networks and machine learning a few years ago versus what generative AI can do is very different and very much at an advanced level. Yeah. And when we say generative, it's almost that ability to go and work on its own. Is that the difference? That is correct. That is the biggest one. I think on its own, within the confines and parameters of what you want it to be. That's the plus of it. Think of it like you're hiring an intern in an organization. So when you get an intern to join an insurance company, first day, they have to go through this cut work, right? Go through the basics, you know, do yep. policy processing work, get a hang of it. Once you get a certain degree of comfort in the apprentice or the intern that they can do X, Y, Z, then you increase the level of complexity of tasks and everything. I can safely say that an AI model like this, which if a company were to adopt it, the best role they can have in the organization is like that of an intern or an apprentice. I think anything more than that is I think we are getting ahead of ourselves and not pacing it at which it should be. But that's the skill level, which I would say it is there. With the sorcerer's apprentice, he made a bit of a mess of things quite quickly. Didn't it? Everything went quite wrong. And then luckily the sorcerer came back from his lunch break and everything was okay. Yeah, so we're on this journey. It's interesting you say for us not to get too far ahead of ourselves, because I suppose 
in many ways, we're just at the beginning of this digitization journey in insurance ourselves. How far are we down that journey that in order to get this AI to really work in our industry, we're going to need to be more digital to start with. And we're only just beginning to digitize, particularly in the specialty in this commercial insurance end of insurance that we're all talking about and that we're working in. It's only just beginning, really. How long do you think it will be before this apprentice will be doing some meaningful work for us? I don't think I agree with you on that, Mark. If you look at the remark of insurance companies are not digital yet, so we cannot adopt generative AI today, was probably true in the example of the typical machine learning, which I told, right? Like, how do you train models and data sets if you don't have data sets? You can't do that. So that was a constraint of the machine learning neural network models in the typical sense. What generative AI can do is that's not a limitation anymore. The large language models can be trained to a great extent on the task. We can actually adopt them for things we want to do and increase the level of, by us, I mean, specific insurance company in the century. It might not have the best kind of digital infrastructure, but that can go on in parallel. I don't think it's a two-step process necessarily. Now, of course, if you have it, it's better. But I don't feel any insurance company or entity should feel that in a few years, for you to adopt a generative AI, they need to have everything in order first. I think that's the benefit of large language models because it's already been trained on so many other things. I'll give you a great example. We took some early instances on Azure to load up property underwriting report, which is a 300-page PDF document. Yeah. And we told the large language model, think of yourself as a property underwriter, you typically look for XYZ information. This is what you're trying to do. Extract these for us. The model was able to do it with a very high degree of accuracy. That's great because, I mean, you know, we've all read hundreds of property inspection reports and they're all more <laughs> or less the same, aren't they? You know, they're very formulaic. Yeah. So if an insurance company didn't have a digital infrastructure and they still have only emails or folders, they can still use this. I mean, it's better if there's a different process. So It's kind of democratizing access to AI in some ways that way. So um, I don't think insurance companies should, or any NGA or broker should feel they're limited because they don't have it today. I think both can happen in parallel. So these are the sort of things that AI are good for. Any other examples of what is it really good at? It's good at spotting, for example, anything language related, obviously, because these are language models. I mean, I can tell you some of the things we are working on as proof of concepts, right? So if you look at personal lines, there's a lot of entry-level work which happens at customer interaction at contact center levels, right? So either it's a claims FNOL or, you know, you're calling in to make some basic changes to your policy. That body of work has a high potential to be disrupted if you come into the broking world, right? I mean, or agencies, There is a lot of manual repetitive tasks which can be done by AI, right from providing proof of coverage and things like that to even policy checking. One of the typical things is between the binder and the policy, the agents want to make sure that everything is captured, right? The policy, you check through it, read through it. AI can be reasonably trained to help you identify all those differences. If we talk about commercial insurers, I think it's like having a junior underwriting assistant, all these 300 page reports, asking an assistant to summarize it, identify any anomalies you're seeing. There's hundreds of losses in the loss run. Can you find few losses which are probably the same instant? So these are all tasks which typically you can give to a junior entry level person and tell them, okay, this is what I look for. And can you do it for me? 
you can give the same job to AI. So these are all the use cases we are seeing, but I think a lot more would come out when people start doing things themselves and it gets a bit more of mainstream adoption. So it really is just like having another person in the office, but a person who has unlimited boredom thresholds. Yes, I, I think no time constraint. Somebody is willing to learn constantly, improve, but we do need to realize that it's still learning. And we need to double check the work. We need to be sure what is doing. And this is, might be a, a bit of a controversial topic, but one of the limitations or constraints I see with AI adoption is also bias. And I don't know what's the right answer. I mean, all these generative AI models have been trained on the existing internet data, which is fraught with racial biases, uh, fraught with economic biases, and all of these things. I don't know how true it is, but I've seen one of the posts on LinkedIn about you ask generative AI to create images of people, a typical CEO, and how they envision it, a prisoner, what the AI envisions. It demonstrates a racial bias. If you have a junior or an intern who comes in with this bias, and when we are learning and training it, we are not addressing or eliminating these biases. If you keep building on it, I don't know if we are progressing in the right manner or not. So like I said, I wish I had a very clear, strong thing to offer on that as to good or bad. I don't know enough, but I would anticipate something like that could be there. And it doesn't behoove the society if we bring in these biases into underwriting processes or claim settlement processes. And that is why I'm very cautious about how much reins you want mm -hmm. to give to AI. Because until we are sure that that is not happening, the additional cost of double-checking the work, additional work of overriding the output is probably worth it for the society in the long run. What about those own inbuilt biases that all underwriters have usually based on experience that they've had from a loss? As you know, <laughs> that um, you go in and say, oh, no, I've got a wood chipping factory. It's like, well, these are really not flavor of the month because it was a massive wood chipping loss last year. Or you come in with a liability count for you know, a big power generator and it's got hydroelectric and they've got big dams and there was a big dam collapse only six weeks ago and they want to know all the downstream exposures. And sometimes these are actually almost superstitions because they're just based on recent experience. It's their own bias, their own recency bias. Whereas actually statistically, of course, the chance of the dam collapsing is quite low. It's the underwriter themselves who've got their own biases. Then I suppose they're going to tell that AI assistant to look for these things, you know, look for the downstream exposure, look for the wood chip, look for this, look for that. You're absolutely right. I mean, what is not to say that all those bad biases are not there with the underwriters themselves? I don't know. Like I said, I think as a society, we need to figure these things out. We need to move at a pace which will adopt this in the right manner. Because I think here there's an opportunity to address some of these biases with machine, with a system. So there's a lot of things around how much really you want them to become intelligent. But I mean, I must feign ignorance. I really can't comment on where this would go. But I believe we have a generational opportunity to create something meaningful. We should approach it with caution. How far do you think we are down this track now in terms of people who've been experimenting with this intern? And how long do you think before they're going to give them an underwriting pen and say, well, these are all the other 73 things that I do before I come up with a price? How far are we from that, from an AI with an underwriting pen? And we're not that far away with support underwriting sometime in some of the London market, of course, with some of the follow syndicates and things where there is artificial intelligence offering support lines saying, I think this is okay. I'm absolutely certain there are going to be 
few syndicates, startups, everything created in the next 12 to 24 months, which will say that you don't need underwriters and everything. And there's going to be a flurry of those. I am also certain that in the next few years, there'll be quite a few who won't work. I think coming out of that, we'll know the few which have worked out and will lay the platform for this to be a long-term success. I don't believe we are ready to do that, but there will be enough out there who feel that it is worth trying out. I think that option would be there, especially follow syndicates. I mean, we've heard that business plan three, four years in different shape or forms, right? Yeah, there's an actual opportunity to do it on it, the syndicate in a box. I'm fairly certain there'll be a few opportunities like this which come out. And though not certain because of the results and everything, let's not forget, it's not just underwriting and risk selection. It's also the impact of AI in our real world, right? I mean, how it could impact indemnity claims, professional indemnities. Lawyers and paralegals relying too much on information being coming in from chat GPT, or you have other people are relying on it more than what it should be. It could have a direct impact on claims as well, right? So there's too much in flux here. And I don't know who said this. I think it was Bill Gates, but we always overestimate the potential of technology in the short run and underestimate it in the long run. Is it going to be more valuable on the claim side or as valuable? For example, deciding, do you think this claim's worth fighting or should we just settle? Asking AI that kind of question, the sort of question that a claims manager is being asked all the time. I think any decisions like these, right? I think the first impact what AI can have is time, right? So if you are a claims adjuster and you had 10 files before you, you can rely on it to give you summary on all the 10, give it the right data points you want to make that decision of to settle or not, right? I think that's the first step. And you could triage the 10 and say, well, I think you yes. should look at these two first because they look pretty bad. Yeah, that too, right? But giving it the ability to decide today, I don't think is needed. So first, no. we how we should leverage AI, in my opinion, not just in insurance and others, is for us to do more. If we could do 10, can we do 100? I yeah. think that should be the goal first about AI adoption and not about I am not needed or can it do without me. It's good to hear you say that because obviously that's something that's always going to be in the back of people's minds. And it seems really obvious that we're talking about codifying things that humans already do and yeah. looking at some of those decisions and saying, well, I do these three things. Can you look for those three things in these thousands of documents and save me the time of doing it myself? They're all very much based on what that human is already doing. And so we could get rid of this myth or this idea or the fear seems to be, you know, the fear that I won't have a job in 10 years time. It doesn't seem to make any sense to me, certainly, but would you agree with that, that people are wrong to fear this? Yeah, I would agree that it's not a risk to jobs, but if somebody says, I want to do the job I'm doing exactly the way I'm doing it 10 years from now, that person will lose his job. I think I absolutely agree with you on that, because if you're not going to adopt all the newest tools, then you're going to become obsolete because you're going to be yeah. about 100 times less productive than everyone else in the office, which is not great. Exactly. Yeah. But I think the time which will free us up from a lot of the basic mundane tasks will free up our minds to come up with the next level of innovation, next level of needs. And I think we all as a society will benefit from that as well. So... I don't see it as a risk to jobs. In fact, I think people who will fight it are probably the ones who are at the most risk of their jobs. But people who see it as an aid and organizations yeah. would see it as an aid, if they see it as a way to eliminate margins and improve their margins, I, I, I think you're missing the forest for the trees there. So. This is a bit like someone saying that, well, you know, I don't use emails. 
is sort of well, yeah. you're not very employable anymore, are you? You could have said that forty years ago because yeah, we didn't yeah. have them. But now, <laughs> yeah, this is a daft thing to say, isn't it? It's just well, it's just exactly. a way of communicating. We'll probably get that similar sort of level of acceptance. Before we go any further, I'd like to ask you, what do you think? AI is not any good at. We were always asking about the possibilities. What about the things that you think probably aren't possibilities, things that you can't really do very well? I think not just now, but even in the future, I think a big grip would be around value systems. Value systems, culture, how people interact. There's a softer element to these things. We can get to the infinite underwriting improvement, but sometimes... You're helping out a client who has been with you for ages, right? That dynamic can't be quantified. And that goes into the culture and value system of an organization or an individual as to how you want to accommodate. So I don't think AIs can do that well. I don't think we should want the AI to do that for us. That's something we should retain. I think in the context of our children and their education, I think the role of parents is going to be most to hold on to this value system. I mean, how do you impact a certain value system? Because information is available and you can get all things done. But helping somebody build empathy, what's the right values, how you want to be known as, how do you want to conduct yourself, those are elements which even if AI can be good at, I don't want the AI to be good at. Dear chat GPT, how should I treat this customer? Do you think, uh, you know, whatever? Yeah, I don't want AI to be making those decisions for us, right? I think that's one area wherein I think many people are underestimating the roles what humans play in that. That's going to be our strength. There's those moments, you know, like the famous moment of Cuthbert Heath in Lloyd's, you know, about 120 years ago, who said, look, just yeah. pay all the claims in full after the San Francisco earthquake. I, we can't really see in any kind of artificial intelligence thinking that's a good idea. But of course, you know, it ended up being one of the best business moves anyone's ever done. Oh, 100% agree with you, Mark. And how the exceptions will be treated in the future. 80% of the tasks would fall within anybody's ability to do it. Those 20% variances, the decisions taken on those are really going to set the tone for any organization, any individual. And I don't think that can be devoid of relationships, that can be devoid of emotion, that can be devoid of empathy, that can be devoid of culture and values. That's an area we as a society will need to pay so much more attention to than what we have done in the past. It doesn't help with all the work from home and everything, but it is what it is, right? I mean, yeah. that, those are areas we will need to pay a lot of attention to. What about often when we have new technology, we have the ability to ensure things that we couldn't ensure before. Do you think that's likely to happen with AI, that we might start creating whole new classes of insurance and fantastic for us and whole new revenue streams where we didn't have them before? Yeah, I'm sure we can. It'll cut both ways, by the way. You're creating exposures which you never thought of, right? So if you're creating exposures, you need to create coverage, right? You mentioned that professional indemnity exposure that we will have as an insurance sector to, of course, this AI is going to be unleashed on every other sector. And of course, we insure all those other sectors. And if some of them are going to automate a lot of things, and then some of those automations turn out to be wrong, then we have a lot of systemic problems. And then we know all about those and we know that they're not great. Do you think we might end up with a problem that we can't ensure the professional indemnity, professional liability risks involved in the application of IAM? I think it will get to a point where these are hard. There will be coverage disputes. There will be claims which are disputed. The forms would get better. These are evolution of things. So it will happen yeah. for certain. But I was recently talking to a startup. They're creating coverage for doctors from medical malpractice on if they rely on AI's 
input is the AI at fault and is a product liability issue or is it a professional indemnity issue because they took an input. So these are all areas which we need to figure out. The industry will need to figure out, the clients will have these expectations. And I suppose these become political problems in the end, don't they? That sometimes we, we have to solve them, we have to make legal yeah. changes. And sometimes yes. you also have a government backstop on some, of course, like we've seen with cyber, we see a call for a government backstop or you see with terrorism insurance, the TRIA, those kind of things. Would you say it's possible that we'd end up with something like that for the big deep AI? I think it can happen for sure. And let's imagine a lot of these services organization around IT services, everybody starts using AI for automated testing. And suddenly we see a spike of claims on that and ENO coverages get held. All what you said can happen, but it could not also. Where I'm going with that is I think as with anything, it's going to be something which evolves and we need to keep a close eye on it as an industry. Yeah. We shouldn't go in with it just saying that it is adopted from a product perspective or clean just for the sake of it. The area though where I think it can make a difference in how we do it is, let's think about what the underwriting process is. Because if you have so many auto drivers, right? I mean, you can't underwrite each person individually. So you created this cluster of questions which put you in a smaller set. So 21 year old boys, driving red cars <laughs> are bad risk. Everybody thinks of that. But you created a cluster because that cluster has been a high loss ratio cluster. But within that cluster, there might be a person who doesn't like to drive, likes to Uber only, and has just bought a car because his parents gifted him one. There's enough social media inputs from him that he hates driving. Or oh, he doesn't drive at night, doesn't drive yeah. home from the disco yeah. or whatever at three o'clock so, in the morning. Yeah. So if we can use AI to break these clusters down into individual levels, we will price risks better and accounts better. And theoretically, that is possible. A lot of things can happen in that way because the premium is so small, it's not worth the time and effort for somebody to underwrite each individual person. But gradually with scale of AI and all those things are possible. So there'll be impact, in my opinion, first on how the business is done before we get to the stage of what we are selling as an industry and how we are settling those claims. So I don't think we should try to bypass that step. Obviously, when something becomes big enough, it becomes political. And of course, we're a regulated industry. Yeah. Obviously, we're so regulated. Do you think we could be regulated in the way that we apply our AI? We've certainly seen this on the consumer side of things, certainly the way that we apply our models or the European Union might say, well, you can't discriminate on the basis of sex or whatever to say that women are better drivers than men and, and whatever else. And again, some of those subsegments, you cannot make any yeah. underwriting decisions. Do you think we're going to have similar because we're creating so many new little pockets of risk? Yeah, again, I might be saying something which is not usually the popular opinion, but I actually think we need to be regulated on these topics more and more. I think regulators will have a bigger role to play in making sure we are not getting too ahead of ourselves in this aspect. Because like I mentioned before, it's very easy to get far ahead with biases built into things. And the increasing importance of how we adopt AI into how we operate not just as insurance in everywhere, if it's going to be so much about what we as a society want to create, the value system we want to create, all the implementing all of these, in some ways, the regulators would have to be a custodian of that. So not only will it fall within the regulated purview, I think we might need 
regulators to play a meaningful role, not a bureaucratic role or an obstacle around its adoption. I think if regulators played a good role in helping us keep the broader society goals and broader needs of the insurance for the society at its helm, with that lens, we help adopt AI. I think regulators have a very meaningful role to play in how this is done. And what about you as a business, you as an entrepreneur, where are you placing most of your own investments within this AI sphere? Or are you just following what your clients are already asking you to do? Like I mentioned to you, those use cases, we've looked at different industry segments in personal lines, commercial lines, specialty lines, and how we are taking it is typically, see, we do a lot of support work for our clients. And so if we can see us doing a better job for them by adopting the AI and eliminating being more efficient, we are able to take to our clients and say, hang on, you know, you earlier had five people in our organization supporting you on this, but with the combination of AI, it needs to be only one person, right? But for it to truly adopt, we need your support. And for it to be a constructive business model, it shouldn't eat into our business. I mean, if we are going to be as a business losing people, but also losing profit margins, then there is no incentive for organizations like us to stay ahead on the innovation curve. But if I could come to insurance companies and clients and say, hey, hang on, I'm willing to compromise on my revenues because the one person I have is better margins and can scale well, I have no problem with that. So I don't think insurance companies should be spending R&D in trying to come up with use cases around chat GPT. It's organizations like us who needs to demonstrate to our clients that this technology has legs or not, can really yield a benefit or not. That's what we're trying to do. And based on the line of business, we are approaching different elements of the operational area wherein we could add this value. That's at least how we're thinking about it as an organization. The industry is not a technology industry. It should be an adopter of technology. And you as the technologist should be coming to say, here's this tool. It's going to be great. You should use it. We think it will work. But it's up to them to buy it off you and to use it, isn't it, really? Yeah, absolutely. As an industry, we haven't branded ourselves well. I saw this statistic, the top 100 jobs in the U.S., from an interest for the young population. I think actuaries were at 93 or something. <laughs> but data science and statisticians are in top 10. It's crazy because there's not a huge difference. I always say the actuaries are the OGs of data science. Insurance industry has been data science and technology even before those became monikers that way. So we have not done the industry a good service by branding ourselves in this manner that we are lagging in technology or data. We have always been at that. We just need to be better incorporating it, demonstrating it about how we are approaching on that. So everybody's going to get better with it. And I think this will help the industry in its positioning too and attracting young talent and all of that. And so just to summarize on this, it sounds like you're extremely positive about the benefits of AI in general, and you're looking to be implementing much more of this. That is a true statement, Mark. I'm always extremely bullish on the insurance industry and an eternal optimist there and the need for it. But I think we have such a strong potential to help our industry accelerate and grow and all by the right adoption of all the things out there. So we are thinking quite seriously about it. We are bullish about it. And certainly when you think about the systemic risks, you think, well, why wouldn't you want to have all your policies in order? You know, every time we've had a large hurricane, it's when you discover that so many things weren't actually in order or a large loss or, you know, we had the Twin Towers and they had, didn't even have a cover note. Hopefully now, you know, you could say, well, you can't deny that it's going to be a better world where we knew there was a cover note before someone handed over a premium, that kind of thing. This is progress. I don't think we could stand in the way of it, can we? 
I don't think we should, but I've said this to the entire team of the conversation. Let's not run. Let's take steps at a time. Let's take baby steps at a time and let's keep the pace on. You don't need to start getting ahead of ourselves, but trying to be a naysayer here won't help because we all need to do it together. Me as a journalist, I'm going to have to take some time to do some of this because I can see some of the productivity that can come from this. For example, if I did 20 different interviews, you know, I've done this where I've tried to turn that into a documentary and I know I need an assistant like this would be fantastic to say, can you talk about all the bits where they talk about reinsurance pricing, please? Can you just clip those for me and put them over here? Can you do the bit about capacity over here? Can you do the bit about brokers over here? And it would save me about 30, 40, 50 hours. And it means I could produce more documentary style things, which I think are higher added value and so good. But I must do that myself. You just hit on a very important point, Mark. The true adoption of AI is going to be led by small business owners like yourself. It's journalists like yourself or individual consultants or smaller firms who were strung for resources, money, and everything. They're going to lead the charge on AI adoption, show an impact to your respective businesses because of that. And it's going to be so loud that nobody can ignore it, right? So yeah. that's how I it envisioning and you, you gave a great way of describing how you think about it right? so. then it's down to those organizations if they have the right sort of culture it doesn't matter how big the organization if they say well why don't we let our underwriters experiment with some of this stuff you know because it's only going to help them if it lets them help them why not why don't you just let them do it let them talk to a room absolutely <laughs> and so finally if anyone's got any more questions what's the best way of getting in touch with you I think my email address is on the invite as well. Excellent. We'll put that on the notes to the podcast that go with it. I'm just looking at my list of questions. I think we've covered the topics, probably not in the order that I had those questions, but it's just the nature of the beast. It's such a big topic. And we probably could have talked for another hour at least. But I think we've left the listener with quite a lot to be thinking about there. So thank you so much, Aaron. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's nice to talk to someone who really knows what they're talking about on this rather than reading sort of LinkedIn posts that say seven great things that AI is going to change. And you think, well, I don't really know. Does this person really know what they're talking about? It's nice to go straight to the source. So I really, really appreciate that. Thank you so much. I enjoy the conversation as well, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>